everyone and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picture the Scene Podcast, brought to you by Aura Studios. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you a new episode on a weekly basis, mainly focusing on lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, at times, we expand into cases from anywhere in the world and all ones that are well known. As evidenced by Rachel's excellent presentation on the last double header we had over the last two weeks. Uh, as we are a true crime podcast, listener caution is always advised. And today there could be graphic descriptions of death. So please be aware. If you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating there and review as well. It does mean a world to us, doesn't it, Rachel? It does indeed. And I also like how you were, we have graphic descriptions of death. If you like what you hear. <laughs> yes, I guess. <laughs> and if, if you do like it that much, that you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon. We currently only have one tier, and that's at £1 a month. We release bonus content every month. The links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes, or visit patreon.com slash scenepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash S-E-E-N-E-P-O-D. Now, additionally, we now release, where possible, each episode a week early on Patreon. So if you need another episode and don't want to wait, next week's is already there waiting for you. So why not sign up? I'd like to give a massive shout out to Pamela Larkum, who has become our latest member of the Picture the Sea family and has started supporting us on Patreon. Whoop, whoop. Thanks, Pamela. Yeah, thank you, Pamela. I hope you're enjoying the extra content. So, Rachel, how have you been since we last spoke? I've been positively sparkly. Have, how about you? I've been great, sparkling too, although now you've said that, I wonder, is there any way we can be negatively sparkling? No, I don't think so. It's Friday, we record bright and early in the morning. What else kind of, you know, happy Friday vibe, other than happy Friday vibes, would we want to give? Exactly, that's true. And I guess it leads Oh, actually, by... it's happy Tuesday vibes, isn't it? Sorry. We, we, no, we recorded on Friday, so we can be yeah. giving those Friday vibes to the people who are listening on Tuesday. Good point. I actually, Tuesday is, is for me, not a great day in the working week. So you're absolutely right. We are channeling our positive happy Friday vibes to all of our Tuesday listeners. Exactly. And are you ready for some true crime? Oh, absolutely. I was born ready. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. So today's episode was recommended by Nicole Foster, who reached out to, because this case has fascinated her since it happened due to it being the first case she was involved with when she was a police civilian. Now, when I looked into it, I have to admit I was hooked. So I thought I had to cover it. So thank you, Nicole. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. I'm really interested. Andrew hasn't told me anything about this case apart from that warning at the start and graphic descriptions of death um so yeah bring it on okay so if it's safe you all to do so i'd like to relax close your eyes and picture the scene today i'd like to take us back to december the 13th 1988 which was a tuesday and we're going to salton which is a small village in north yorkshire with a population of around 100 people at the date in question and while i will say it was mentioned in a doomsday book 
<laughs> I've not, I've not mentioned that in a while. What the village is known for is that it's local village church, the Church of St. John of Beverly, towards the end of the 12th century, were set alight with all mm. the villages inside it by a band of marauding Scottish people who were invading England, leaving them all to die. And some of the stone in the walls of the church is still dyed pink from that fire. Wow. Okay, like really interesting and morbid fact of the day, guys. Yes. But back to 1988, it was a very quiet, very rural farming village in North Yorkshire. I'd like to take it specifically to Broke's Farm, which is a small 30-acre farm at the time. And it was home to 34-year-old William Smith, who was unsurprisingly, Rachel, a farmer. And his wife, 29-year-old Stephanie Jane Smith, who went by the middle name Jane, so that's what we'll call her from here on in. And she worked as a nurse at Rosewood Nursing Home in a nearby town of Malton. Now, on the night in question, it was around 2 degrees Celsius, which is around 36 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's around 10.20pm, roughly, at night time, so it's pitch black. And being in a rural location means there's not much artificial light pollution either, making the stars in the sky really pop out. But there was not much popping tonight, Rachel, because it was raining and it was windy, which made it even darker and overall quite miserable. Now, Jane had just finished a long shift as a nurse in a nursing home in the nearby town of Morton. She had gotten in her car at around 9.50, and it could take 20 to 30 minutes to drive home at that time of night. Now, given the weather conditions, probably took around 30 minutes. As her Morris Marina turns off a small country lane onto the Morris drive Morris Marina? Yes. I've heard of that before. Like a car. Yeah, you've got Morris right. Morris Miners, but you also have Morris Marinas. Oh, Morris Miner. Oh, okay. No, it's not a Morris Miner. No, it's an old tower car. Before your time. Um, uh, if you look at Heartbeat, if you ever watch Heartbeat, you see them on there. If it still exists. Um, but yeah, as her Morris Marina turned off a small country lane onto the drive of the farm that she lived on, she pulls up close to the farmhouse. She gets out of the car and feels a gun pressed against her back. She is ordered to walk up the driveway, away from the farmhouse. Now, we've spoken a few times, Rachel, in the past, especially on a Sarah Everard episode, about what it's like for a woman, alone at night, the fear you can feel, even in a familiar place like Jane was. So can you imagine the fear she's feeling, knowing she's in danger, but not knowing what or why? I actually think it's... it. It's worse when it's in your own home as well. From what I've read, it's like, you know, especially like you pulled up on your drive, you kind of think, okay, I'm in my safe place now. I know my surroundings, like getting out of my car, it's just like you're on autopilot, your guard is completely down. Whereas as as a woman and what I was kind of explaining in the Sarah Everard case, when you're walking home at night, you're looking around you, you're kind of keeping aware of what's going on, but yeah, I reckon like she was probably just an autopilot getting out of that car. So like catapulted into an even worse like headspace of what the hell's happening to me. Yeah, exactly. And but unfortunately for Jane, that fear would not last very long. For a few moments later, the gun that had been pressed against her back was now raised upwards. So it was behind her head. 
And at point blank range, she was shot once with a twenty-two rifle. Sorry. Oh, hang on. When you said, luckily for Jane, I thought it was going to be a good news story, but you're actually saying that she was put out of her misery quite quickly. No, I said, unfortunately for Jane. Oh, sorry. I thought you said, fortunately. Wow. No. Okay. Unfortunately, yeah. And so, yeah, she was shot once with a .22 rifle, killing her instantly as she fell face forward onto the ground. Now, coincidentally, Rachel, the Home Office pathologist who would examine the incident would later go on to describe the shooting as bearing all the hallmarks of a professional killer. Jane's, li- Jane's lifeless body is then moved into a position on a driveway where it can be easily found with her clothes being removed partially and their body positioned to make it look like Jane had been a victim barbaric sex attack. And initially, that did work, for the police at first reported it as what they described as a classic rape and murder. Now, oh. I'm not sure the word classic is appropriate there, but it's the 1980s, so lots of things were not appropriate at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here, though, Rachel. So after Jane had been killed and positioned, her killer, or killers, fled the scene. So let's move forward a little, about 90 minutes, give or take. Then we're coming up to midnight. There or thereabouts, and William, Jane's wife, is on his way home. Oh, God. Yeah, he'd been out for the evening, initially playing five-a-side football with his friends, and as usual, having a few drinks and socialising with them afterwards, something which he did on a regular basis, so it wasn't really out of the ordinary. As he drove home in his pickup truck, he drove down the same lane Jane did, pulling into the drive, just as she did, at the secluded home. But this is where the journey differs. As he drove slowly along the drive, his headlights picked something out in the middle of the drive, at first he thought it may have been an object blown from somewhere, because remember it was windy and raining, but it soon became apparent through the rain that it was a body. Rushing out of his car to the body, he recognised his wife, who at that point was quite clearly dead. So this was a small community that lived in Rachel. Everyone knew everyone else. So word got around quickly about Farmer Smith's wife being killed, with no one knowing who could be responsible. The police quickly issued a statement saying that while they had no suspect at the moment, they were seeking the gunman responsible. Yeah. So it became obvious, though, that the police thought they knew who had killed Jane, or at least they thought they had an idea. Is it going to be? Is it going to be? Is it going to be the husband? Let's see, shall we? Let's see. I'm going to say let's see because later on, towards the end. It depends who you ask. Would depend who did it. Oh, this so you're bringing like, us an unsolved case. Maybe, maybe not. But this is fascinating. So okay, we'll, it depends Sorry. who you ask. It depends Shouldn't who you ask back. if it's unsolved or not. Yeah, within two days, their statement of the killing, their statement had changed, saying they were looking to speak to William's ex-girlfriends, and then very quickly the plural was dropped, and saying they were saying stating they were looking to speak to an ex-girlfriend of Williams. But you said that it was uh, potentially a hit done by a professional. That's what the Home Office pathologist said. And let's get on to... See, this is part of the whole mystery. It's, It's interesting. So less than a week, so seven days, had passed before the police made an... Hang on. Hang on. Seven days is a week. Yeah, I just read that. Um... 
I think I was clarifying how long a week was, but I think everyone knows how long a week was. But it was less than a week. Um, it was six days to be exact, I believe. But I don't know why I had to tell people how long a week was. Uh, but, yeah, they, so less than a week had passed before the police made an arrest. Arresting and charging an Yvonne Slytone, who was a 36-year-old medical receptionist, and probably, importantly, in relation to this case, was an ex-fiancé of William Smith, Jane's wife. So Will Smith was a bit of a serial, will you be my wife? Ask her. Possibly, yes. So before we got onto the court case, because it did go to court, and what happened after it, which fascinated me, and made it the reason I agreed to cover this for Nicole, I think it'd help if I gave you some background on the relationship between Yvonne and William, and William and Jane. William met Yvonne on New Year's Eve, 1980, and after being together a decent amount of time, they got engaged in 1986, with a wedding date for later in the year set. But that got postponed due to some issues they were having, some arguments, and it was then set to take place in the summer of 1987. So in April of 1987, though, a few months before William's marriage to Yvonne was due to take place, one of William's old school friends, a Jane Wilford, moved back to Morton after having moved to Nottingham originally to work as a nurse. When William found out about this, he rekindled his friendship with Jane, turning to her for advice as his engagement to Yvonne was not going well. Mm. Lots, of, lots of issues and arguments. Within a very short amount of time, William and Jane decided their friendship was more than that and they both loved each other. When this happened, William called off the marriage again, because it was the second time now he'd called it off, and Jane quickly moved into William's farm not long afterwards. Oh, okay, okay. Starting to build that picture now of why it could have been Yvonne. Yeah, Jane moved actually in, in, 1980, in the summer of 1987, so only a couple of months after um, they started talking again. Now, Yvonne was actually quoted as saying this about what happened. I was devastated. My whole world fell apart. There were no bitter arguments, but we were both very emotionally upset and crying. So now, that's up to this point. So, those facts are pretty much set in stone. Everyone accepts them, all parties. Mm -hmm. But now there are two versions of events that happened after this. Yvonne would state that even though their relationship formally broke off, they carried on seeing each other. Even after... William and Jane got married in May of 1988, some seven months before Jane was killed. She said at the time of this split, so back in April, that she was actually pregnant with William's baby, but had miscarried shortly afterwards. She claimed that her and Jane actually got on really well, saying, we never had any angry words or bitterness. We could talk together. She was very sweet. This is very odd. Like, I'm not surprised that the police were piecing together like the build up towards it being Yvonne yeah well William however described things slightly differently as you'd imagine we know that prior to her death now I couldn't find out exactly when so it may have been just before it could have been before the two got married but prior to her death Jane's family had actually gone to the police to see what they could do as they were worried about Jane's safety as they thought Yvonne was obsessed with William and had become dangerous. Oh, wow. 
William would describe Yvonne as an evil woman, saying that Jane would often call her a cheat and a liar. William would admit that when the pair split, Yvonne did tell him she was pregnant, but that even if she would have been pregnant, it wouldn't change a thing and he could still not be with her. He did go on to say that he thought Yvonne was lying about that. This is the thing of soap operas, isn't it? Yes. He thought Yvonne was lying about that because previously in the relationship, he said she had claimed to have leukemia, which wasn't true. Oh, God. But just for clarity, Yvonne denied ever having said that she had leukemia. Right, okay. So it's a classic he said, she said scenario here. Yeah, which gets even weirder. Rachel, however, I said it last week and I'll say it again. Just because someone is not a very nice person for whatever reason, so it doesn't mean that they're automatically a criminal or nailed on for having done whatever they've been accused of, does it? It just means they're a horrible person. Hmm. So, now, so now I've covered what happened and given you some background on all the major parties involved, so far at least, Let's move on. Let's move this on forward a little bit, shall we? So I'm yes, not here please. all day. <laughs> so on the 20th of December, Yvonne, so exactly seven days, going on what we said earlier, Yvonne mm-hmm. was remanded into custody. And as was usual then, for seven days, and it was always seven days at a time until a trial date was set. Usually that would be it, but something happened to Yvonne. It would be over two years before the trial would actually take place. But shortly after Yvonne was arrested, around three months actually, and remanded, she would go blind. So this is the first time I've seen this happen, Rachel. What about you, where someone suddenly goes blind? Uh, No, strangely enough, um, I have or had a colleague in a previous company. And yeah. In her early 20s, just woke up one day and able to see anymore. Was that for a medical reason or? Medical, yes. I see. Yvonne's blindness wasn't the result of any physical condition or disease or any medical condition. Okay. But it was said to be due to the extreme stress Yvonne was feeling, making the cause psychological. Wow. Okay, no, I've not heard of that before. Like, I I mean, obviously, I, I don't understand all of the ways that stress can impact the body but i've heard of like prolonged stress causing like cancer tumors um obviously like the the usual like heart attacks and like all of the like insomnia and all of the repercussions that come off the back of that i've never heard of of blindness yeah so back in 1988 this was labeled as hysterical blindness but these days it's called conversion disorder don't you love how, like, back in the day when it was called hysterical blindness, it just gave no sympathy whatsoever to the the holder of yeah, it? Exactly. Hysterical blindness. It's just yeah, adding why, insult to injury. That's why they don't use that name anymore, yeah. So yeah. conversion okay. disorder can occur when a person experiences a stressful event and it can begin suddenly and it can manifest as either blindness, paralysis, or other oh. ne- neurological conditions that cannot be explained by medical evaluation. And can can it quite as easily return? Yes. Oh, wow. Some healthcare providers falsely believe that conversion disorder is not a real condition 
and may tell people that their problem is all in their head. But this condition... Oh, wow. Yeah, this condition is real, though, Rachel. And it can cause, obviously, distress. And it can't be turned on and off at will. No. Interestingly, Rach, the physical symptoms that show as a result of conversion disorder are thought to be an attempt by the mind to resolve the conflict that a person feels inside. So, if a person who is not normally violent experiences thoughts and a desire to seriously physically hurt someone, the stress and conflict that causes that conflict within a person could manifest itself via conversion disorder to make that person's arms go numb and not being able to be used, therefore rendering useless the things a person could use to harm the person with. So am I right in suggesting that this played into the narrative that she was indeed guilty? Or innocent. You can argue both sides here. Because you could say she was innocent, so just the stress of having to be on remand could have triggered it. But you could also say she didn't want to face herself and look at herself because she was guilty. Yeah, sorry, that's that's the route I was going down. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about um, the, the stress manifesting itself because she was actually innocent. Um, I would imagine, like, that kind of stress would have come more down to, like, potentially like a personality disorder, you know, where you are kind of having all these people around you telling you something and you're, like, convincing yourself otherwise you'd almost like be conflicted there but I thought this where my head went anyway um or is going in that she is so disgusted with her actions and her behaviors that yeah she can't look at herself or anyone and that's how it's kind of come into play but yeah yeah that could be it's I seriously it's for you and the listeners to decide because this is why it's interesting so it was said that even though Yvonne would register as blind after it occurred having been affected so much that she totally was totally blind in one eye and could only see faint colors and shapes in the other the prison authorities though did not believe her so she wasn't afforded any accommodations while on remand with the exception of a blind typewriter given to her by a blind charity. Due to her condition, almost a year into her remand stay, Yvonne's lawyers would go back to the court and petition them to let her be released on bail due to the fact that not only had her brother and father raised a £10,000 surety against her release, the lawyers argued that preparing her for trial was almost impossible due mm-hmm. to the fact that every document had to be read aloud to her and with her in prison, that really wasn't possible. So in September of 1989, almost a year after her arrest, the judge agreed with her defence team and allowed her to be released on bail back to her father's home. Wow. Purely Which, on the grounds of med- the medical condition? Yes, that she couldn't properly prepare yeah. for the trial and it wasn't fair on her. I imagine at the time, like, it was unprecedented. Possibly. £10,000 is quite a lot of money as well, isn't it? Oh yeah, for the time, bail. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you'd you'd have to be like, yeah, her dad would be minding her, and then again as well, is she a massive flight risk if she is indeed blind? Yeah, and she's claiming her innocence. So yeah, 
the trial would take place in April of 1991, so almost two and a half years after Yvonne was originally arrested. And but it would last for a mere thirteen days. Oh wow! Now, as you'd imagine, the trial was mainly split into two very contrasting sides. So I want to give you and everyone listening both sides because there's been lots of debate over the years about who killed Jane. So it's important to get both aspects. Okay. Firstly, the prosecution. Now they said it was a fairly straightforward case. Jane was killed by one out of pure jealousy. So she could get William back and move Jane out of the way permanently. They referred to the fact that the gun that they found that had killed Jane was, in fact, Yvonne's dad's gun. They also pointed out that they found blood in and on Yvonne's car that matched a rare blood group that only one in 250 people have. Wow. And that matched Jane's blood group. Now, back then, they weren't able to use DNA or similar, so that's as close as they could get. They also pointed out that Yvonne initially said she was on holiday in Kelso in Northumbria, but multiple witnesses put her in the area of the farm on the night Jane was killed. Yeah, and do you know, if we just pause for a second, it really frustrates me and happens in so many cases factual and obviously televised like as in and what i mean by televised is cases where that particular crime has gone on to become like a documentary or something where the people that are protesting their innocence have lied about their alibi like they oh they just didn't think that anybody would actually follow up and validate things like i mean yeah it's for me incredibly infuriating like i mean i I don't like liars because I find that when people lie to you, they just, they're testing your idiocy. Like, yes. like, do you think I'm thick? But when you're lying to the police, they are going to go and corroborate your like witness statement or you, the, you, the series of events of where you were that night. Like, do, do you honestly think that's going to play out well if you lie in court? Like, no, I get you. And I'm trying to stay as neutral as possible at the moment and tell you my opinion at the end. Um, But just, and I'll get onto it in a little bit, but Jane did explain why she lied before the court case was over. Oh, no. And that's the thing, like, there there could be a well explanation for it, but just if you are innocent, tell the fucking truth. However however that might play out, however guilty it might make you said She said there was a valid reason for lying. Okay. And I'm going to well, get on to that. You may okay, change I'll your mind. Then. You may change Sorry. your mind. Yeah, you may not do. Now, a receptionist at the Hotel Hotspur, where she stayed, also testified that Yvonne checked in at 7.45 a.m. on a day after Wednesday the 14th. And more important enough, now remember this detail, Rachel, later on, and everyone listening, okay. she was in a friendly and chatty mood. Okay. okay just keep that in your head. So to, sum- so to summarize, they're basically saying, look, she's got a history of being scary. Look at aspect records of her family trying to get help from the police beforehand. Mm-hmm. She's obviously not happy she's no longer with William. We've got anecdotal evidence from William about her lying mm-hmm. and, and how Jane didn't like her. And they've got reports of her in the area on the night. The gun was her dad's. 
and there is blood on and in the car that matches the same blood group as Jane. So as far as they're concerned, there's no doubt Yvonne killed. But, that is a good, solid story and timeline. But now onto the defence. So the defence called on the Home Office pathologist, who I touched on earlier, Rachel, and he, Dr. Siver, explained that the way Jane was shot, with the bow of the gun touching or very close to the back of Jane's head, at the base, where the neck meets and it pointed upwards, mm. is how a professional hitman would kill someone. So the person who did it was either a professional hitman or it was just a coincidence that they killed her like that. In fact, this is exactly what he had to say. If it's a question of two choices between a lucky amateur and a professional killer, then I would have to say a professional killer. They also produced witnesses who would describe Jane as a quiet, kind, gentle Christian woman. Mm. This was to counteract the claims she was evil, a cheat, and a liar. By the time her trial came, Yvonne was not denying that she was at the farm that evening. Mm. She, she insisted that she had kept seeing William behind Jane's back. Oh. She, she said that on the evening, on that evening, he was supposed to meet her in Pickering, a nearby town, to carry on the affair. But when he didn't show, she phoned him at home and he asked her to visit the farm. These are her own words from the witness stand about what happened when she got to the farm. When I got there, he pulled me into the kitchen. He was not nice at all. Two men were let into the kitchen by William. He picked up a bag and said, this is the end. I'm never going to see you again. He looked at me and it was the coldest stare I'd ever been given in my life. He was looking straight through me with hate and coldness. She then went on to describe how Smith had left the kitchen with a third man entering the kitchen carrying an object which possibly could have been a gun. Then she heard a car arriving and a voice which she thinks may have been Jane's but wasn't sure saying, oh my God, you're not going to do it here. She, she said that when she heard that, she started to scream, that there was a loud bang on the side of her head and she lost consciousness. When she awoke, she said that she was threatened. If she told anyone, what had happened, or that she'd been there, her sister and her sister's two daughters would be killed. So that's why she said she wasn't there. She then said she drove to the hotel in Northumbria to escape the men. Now, a side note to this, it was reported that even a few years after the trial, her sister's kids were still in hiding. So that may be to back up her story. The defence also pointed out that if Jane had, sorry, if Yvonne had killed Jane, why didn't they find any of Jane's blood on any of Yvonne's clothes and only find it on and in the car? Finally, the defence wanted to put across the image of William as a homosexual who would often oh, partake yeah. in sexual activities with men individually or collectively, that he was involved in a drugs trade as a money launderer for a major drugs gang, and he arranged to kill Jane because he didn't want her getting any of the farm when she found out he was gay. I mean, it is the defence's, like, um, it's their purpose in the trial to set the doubt and for there to be enough reasonable doubt in who they are defending being the perpetrator, right? They've definitely done that with those two stories. 
they don't have to prove either of those facts. And this is what, again, I think I'm probably coming across really biased towards um, protecting Will here. But again, they are two really wild scenarios that just play really well into Yvonne's narrative of it definitely wasn't me and this is why. But they won't have had to find any, uh, obviously phones wouldn't have been um, a situation in 1988, but they wouldn't have had to find any letters or evidence or, you know, secret meetings of Will meeting men and booking hotel rooms. And they also wouldn't have had to have like gone and dug around for any, uh, you know, I don't know, mapping of of the pair of them so Yvonne and Will still having that affair in the local town would they they can just say that and leave it there for the jury to think oh okay so he's not um this loving husband and that's what really pees me off in in the case of like these kind of trials where like the defense will just throw some accusations at the jury and see what mud can stick yeah exactly and the defense also noted that when William was with the police after Jane's death, he was totally unemotional, not getting angry or upset or anything else like that. After 13 days, Yvonne would be found guilty of murder by a majority of 10 to 2, with six men and six women on a jury. Some of the jury even broke down and started crying when, oh, wow. Yvonne, when Yvonne was told she would be given a life sentence. Eventually... Wow she was given a minimum of 10 years to save in prison. It doesn't, end, it doesn't end here, though. Hang on, can... she's given a life sentence, and that equates to a minimum of 10 years. Yes, it doesn't end here. We're though, looking at the life of a fucking dog. I know, I know. Um, Sorry. I, no, it's good. No, I get what you're saying. After the conviction, William spoke to a few different newspapers and he addressed that the not showing emotion aspect of it. He said that the way he was brought up, men don't show emotions. And he, that made it really difficult for him to open up in front of other people. He said it was something he was working on. He said he would often just go out into his fields on the farm and just sob and cry. To ex- and he would express how he wanted to express then when no one else could see him. Which, at the time, lots of men were like that, because it was like, you're a strong man, you don't show emotions in front of other people, that's what a woman does. I'm not saying that is what a woman does, but at the time it was, women show emotions, men don't, isn't it? And, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of cases, definitely of late, where people, innocent people and guilty people, haven't behaved as you would expect. So it's a really tricky one to nail down someone's behavior um you know because everyone is built differently and yeah you don't know like like the blindness in the in Yvonne you know that that you could argue either for or against her the same way that you can argue like Will's reaction to the verdict and the case now Yvonne's family would not say much afterwards as they said, they planned to appeal and they didn't want to ruin Yvonne's chances. Other than to say that they never liked William and they only ever fought with him for Yvonne's sake when they were together. So, But I, I feel like, can I just stop you there, sorry, yeah. whilst we're on that point? Like, Jane's family actively did not like Yvonne. Yeah. Yeah. And they were fine about Will? 
Yeah. So could you argue that Yvonne's family were just as bitter as Yvonne was, first of all, that Will had jilted her because they thought, oh, I've married off the daughter. You know, she's going to spend her life on a farm, farmer's wife, happy days, tick, tick, tick. Yeah, and then all they, of a they, sudden, they were farmers too. Yep. Yeah, all of a sudden, he's with somebody else. Like their daughter's probably a wreck. Yet yeah, you're not going to like your ex son in law. Um, that's just normal. But then your daughter is being accused of murdering his now wife, you're going to like him even less. Uh, what I'm just trying to play out is that unless Jane's family also didn't like him, I don't really think that it matters what the accused families thought yeah. of him. Yeah, I, I put that in there because about the appeal. So yeah. because the case doesn't end here, Rachel. Again, sorry. So Jumping no, the gun, fine. aren't I? This is one of the fascinating things that made me want to pick this up after the call yesterday. So as I mentioned a moment ago, after her conviction, Yvonne appealed, which in itself is not surprising, given she maintained her innocence throughout. The main aspects of the appeal were that the gun that was found near Yvonne's father's home, near an outbuilding. Now they argued, why would she drive 15 miles to dump it, to, just to dump it outside and not just put it back in the house. They also said that an apple core found at the farm near Jane's body, it was found, but the police didn't bother to do any bite analysis on it, and they let it rot. They argued that if they'd done so, the jury would have seen it, it wasn't Yvonne's teeth marks, and they wouldn't have found her guilty. Wow. They also, they also the fact that it was a 10-2 majority verdict, so not all the jurors obviously thought that she was guilty. They also argued that Jane and Yvonne were of similar weight, build and height. So how did they expect Yvonne to pick up Jane's body and put it in the boot of the car to move it like the prosecution argued had happened, which is why Jane's blood had got onto Yvonne's car both in and out. Additionally, they included a witness statement from someone called Derek Howard that stated it was common knowledge that William was trying to date a Cat Smith, whose husband had died recently while Jane was still alive. They pointed out that William had admitted to noticing Kath just two weeks after his wife's death, and a year after her death, he had married her. They also said that the original George failed to mention some fingerprint evidence in his summing up. Now, what that evidence was, I don't know. I couldn't find out, but they said that it would have affected the jury's decision. Well, When the appeal verdict was announced, it came back that Yvonne had lost her appeal. Her conviction would stand. But, there's a but here. There's always a but. Yes. Yvonne would maintain her innocence throughout her time in prison. So much so that she ended up spending 16 years in prison before eventually being released still blind. Wow. So for what it's worth, I'm going to give you my opinion here. Okay. I actually think she was guilty of murder. But that's my opinion because there's some major question marks which I want to raise up now. Basically, was William still sleeping with her after he got with Jane? If he was, why did she accuse him of being gay during the trial? At the same time as saying she was still sleeping with him. There is an obvious reason maybe that he was just bisexual because that term was only started 
to be used in, 19, in the 1970s in Britain. I've looked it up. And it wasn't until the mid to late 80s where more people started to use it and became aware of it. So if Yvonne was this Christian woman from a small rural village, it could just be that it just wasn't in her vocab. She didn't know yeah. the word bi- bisexual. So, and at, so at the time, he slept with men, so he was gay. But can so, I also can I also kind of suggest that you know I I kind of fall back to that thing that I positioned before, like let's throw a load of shit at the wall and see what sticks. Like yes. let's tell him he was still sleeping with me, but also layer in the fact that he was probably sleeping with multiple men, just in case they don't believe that he was still sleeping with me, but it could have been legit that, yeah, other men were on the scene. Do you know what I mean? I get what you're saying. I'm just trying to throw all the questions out yeah. there. Because yeah. There's also the gun. So why drive back and dump it outside? Probably also, why didn't have a fingerprints on it? But why drive back and just dump it outside of an outbuilding? Because if they put it back in the house it probably would have never got found because it'd be like, well, my gun's always been here. Then there's a the blood. So how can blood get everywhere except on Yvonne's clothes? Now, we don't know what she was wearing that day, so she could have just thrown them away. But there is that question. I think the apple core, but I think that was stretching a little bit, and I don't think it could prove anything either way. Now, after she lost her appeal, some people started to campaign for her. Some people she didn't even know, some strangers looked into her case, and thought, she's innocent. And they argued that a bloody handprint that was found in Yvonne's car could never have been Yvonne's because it was the wrong size. It was a man's bloody handprint. But and they, but they only had photographs of it because it didn't exist anymore. So they couldn't actually test whether it could be Yvonne's handprint or not. They also argued, and I think this is a valid argument, this bit here, when... She realised she wouldn't get out early. Because after her appeal, her solicitors actually came out and record and said, we've told her she can't do anything else. She's in prison now. So when she realised she wouldn't get out early, why not just admit her guilt so she wouldn't have to spend extra time in prison? Well, I actually think that when people put themselves in the zone of protesting their innocence, innocent or guilty that's their stance on it almost psychologically convincing themselves they weren't involved they weren't at the scene of the crime they didn't know the accused or whatever that looks like um they are completely convinced in their own right that they weren't there and it wasn't there i get you so uh, those questions could be well you're leaning towards trying to say maybe she didn't do it so here are a few questions to ask yourself as to maybe to prove she did do it. Okay, okay. So firstly, there's a question of her behaviour as reported by the receptionist. Do you remember? I asked you to remember yeah. that. Yeah. Now, I think this is what swung it for me, why I think she's guilty. Because if she had been hit in the head and threatened, and her sister and niece is threatened, why, not, why just go and continue your holiday like nothing happened and be cheerful and happy? Yeah. And why after her conviction would she let her sister keep her kids in hiding if she was guilty? Does that prove her innocence? Or, like you said, does it just prove she had some kind of delusional disorder? Because you think about it, if she was found guilty, then they wouldn't come after her sister or her kids because she's been found guilty. 
they're free and innocent. They could walk off because even though she didn't do it, she's been found guilty of it. So why go after the kids? Because that would just make her look innocent if suddenly her mm-hmm. sister and kids turned up dead. So her conversion disorder blindness. So let's touch on this now. Now, I'm not sure why the prison authorities didn't believe her. So I guess we'll just have to accept she did go blind. Although they saw her 24 hours a day and they thought that she was faking it. Was this as a result of her innocence or her guilt, like we mentioned earlier? It didn't start until she'd been on my mind for three months. Let's remember this. So if it was the stress of being arrested, why take three months to manifest? And also, I couldn't find anything about her after her release. There was lots of the couple who was helping her prove her innocence were going to carry on, but nothing happened. But it'd be interesting to know if a vision came back or not. That would be super interesting because if a, if a vision suddenly came back after a release, it would A, either prove she was faking it or B, prove that the stress was just down to being locked up. So I know there's lots of questions there, but to me, the blood, the gun, the history of behavior, I think she was guilty. What do you think, Mitch? Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that coupled with the fact that it's been through almost like two trials fair enough like first trial intense 13 days judge and jury but there's also been an appeal process where it's gone through a second set of eyes and been looked at like properly without support for a oh go on also just probably this will i'm just want to cut it because this will affect your answer i didn't put it in the story because nothing new actually came out but the the couple actually did manage to get a review of her case done and it came back and said nothing changes so it was kind of like a second appeal yeah yeah exactly right and and it's still gone through that those steps formally without anyone judging her but just looking at the case in black and white right and it's still not um it's still not worked in her favor so you you in these situations like not only is what you've proposed today brought me to the conclusion that she's guilty but you've also got to trust the jury system haven't you and that uh, justice was served and that she was found guilty i would be interested to see what everyone out there thinks yeah absolutely it's It's not a case i've heard of before so i think uh, i think people other people will be the same and yeah it's an interesting one to spark a bit of debate yeah thank you nicole it goes to show that if you suggest a case it can be super interesting, so please do. So let me wrap this up then. This has been Season 2, Episode 20, called Blind Panic. And for one last time, if it's safe to do so, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes, and picture the scene. you on holiday, maybe a short break or a little longer. you are relaxed. It's the start of your holiday and you're happy. You're waiting in line at the hotel to check in, and the person in front of you is super happy as they check in laughing and joking with the receptionists, seeming like they have no care in the world. The question I have to ask you is, do they? So thank you all for listening. A little bit longer today, I think, but um, I've enjoyed this case. Yeah, thank you for bringing it to us. And thanks, Nicole. Yeah. Thank you all. And we shall see you next week. (laughs) 